Let's have a look at Titus in a moment. I'm going to get Bibles. I think Bibles will come out, and it'll be good to have Bibles open or a Bible app um, so that you can see what is said on the page or on your screen. But I think also the words will come up there. But just beforehand, let me just, let me just run a few questions past us. Just get the juices going here. Let's just think a little bit about a few things um, so that we kind of get a sense of why we might need to read the Bible today, okay? <laughs> Let's have a think. Um, if you were given, okay, here you go. I'm going to give you £100,000. No, I'm not. I'm going to give you £200,000. £200,000, and you're to spend it on, on improving outcomes for people in Southend, okay? You've got two hundred grand. You need to improve outcomes for people in Southend. What do you do? 200K is quite a lot of money. Have a think. You don't need to turn to a neighbour. Just you can just think about that. I had. Uh, I was sat over there. I'm meeting with a guy. There's the bird. He's listening. There's, you better be listening to this preaching. Um, I was talking to a guy just down there, and um, he comes at me. I've met with him a few times. He's not a Christian. Um, he's lovely though, and we have some good conversations. And straight away, when we were talking about this building one time, he said, "I'll tell you what to do." Uh, immediately turn this into a homeless shelter. He was like multi-floor. He was starting to plan it out. Let's just have a mezzanine. We could get some more beds up there. We could put some dormitories up there. We could turn it into a homeless shelter straight away. That's what, that was his idea. If I gave him 200,000 pounds, he's like, just turn this straight away into a homeless shelter. I wonder if you've got some sympathies with that. Um, another question. What should a church minister, someone like me, pastor, do? Um, what is real like proper ministry, the real, you know, the real ministry. What's that? If I said, oh yeah, this week I've been doing some real ministry, like actual proper ministry, what would you say? What is that in your head? So for example, we had, um, we had a few stones go through our east window, and a group of uh, Young folks, I suppose, I think, I imagine, came along round the back, chucked some uh, rocks through our window. And um, what if I managed to get those guys together and, I don't know, build a skate park outside there, and that gave them a place to come and, you know, run off some steam and get together and maybe build up some good relationships? Is that, like, that's, is that real that's real nitty-gritty ministry, that. That's it. That's where it's at. That's the real stuff. That's the real stuff. What would you want? Here's another one. Here's another one. What would you want? I don't know if you imagine uh, some of the most poorest communities worldwide now, not just locally, maybe worldwide, um, the kind of places you might see in very rural uh, heartlands of Africa, for example. If you were to go there... What's your first move? What's the first thing you would do? Or what's the main thing you would do? Could be lots of things you would want to do. What's the main thing? I'm going to tell you a bit later on what a very well-known, um, experienced MP and broadcaster and atheist, how he answered that question in a few minutes. But first, I just want you to ponder those questions because it, will reveal, it reveals a lot about what we think the deepest human needs are and how we think we drive change. 
how we think we get better outcomes for people and places. The answers to those questions reveal what we think is really needed to drive human change, better outcomes, those sorts of things. And it's actually the question that Paul is addressing and telling Titus about in this short letter. It's a punchy letter, remember, on Crete. Now, it's not Crete as in modern-day Crete. I know a few people have been to Crete, but Crete's not like a lovely Mediterranean destination with museums and you can put your feet up and lovely beaches and have some coffee. Don't think of Crete like that. First century Crete was a mess, a real, real mess. So you remember in chapter 1, verse 12, the description of Crete was always liars, evil animals like brutes, lazy gluttons. It was not a great place. There was a lot of social issues. There was corruption. There was despondency, lazy gluttons. People had become despondent because stuff was so bad. It was not a good place to be. That is the situation that Paul's writing to Titus about. He's saying, okay, we're in Titus. We've got to do ministry in Titus. What are we going to do? That's the question he's asking. This is a difficult gig. This is a really difficult place to do ministry. Titus, here's what you've got to do. Okay. So let's read it, okay? I'm going to read you the first, um, actually the first eight verses, and it'd be great if we can have those on the screen. And I will read, yeah, the first eight verses, and then we'll pause. So he says, this is Paul now writing to Titus, he says, remind the people, this is your people in Crete, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obedient, to be obedient, to do whatever is good, ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, to always be gentle towards everyone. I mean, that is, isn't that, just before we go on, isn't that kind of what we all want? That kind of, you know, life together, peaceable, gentle, everyone's considerate. It's actually a great place to be. It's a great place to live. People are genuinely kind. They respect authority, those sorts of things. Right, then he says, verse 3, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But, but, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, as we were reading a minute ago, heirs, sons and daughters, having the hope of eternal life. Verse 8, this, so all of the above, like those bits we've just read, this is a trustworthy saying. And I want you, Titus, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. I'm going to stop there. But keep it open. If you've got Bibles in front of you, please keep it open. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Okay. Now, I just want to zone in. Just come in on verse 8 for me, the beginning of verse 8, because I want to see some very, very important words. He says, Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying, right? You can take all of this stuff to the bank. That's verses 4 to 7, that whole thing, that whole section where he starts. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, all that section, he's like, all of that, you can take that to the bank. It's trustworthy. And I want you, he says to Titus, stress these things. Second line there, stress these things so that, okay, see the so that there? So that... Those who've trusted in God, that's Christians, those people may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. You stress these things so that Christians will devote themselves to doing what is good. And that, these things, will be excellent and profitable for everyone, for everyone in, on Crete. So can you see the phases here? Just heads up. Phase one, he's like, stress these things, teach this stuff. You stress these things, all of those wonderful, wonderful truths that we're going to say in a minute. That's your job, stress that. Then phase two, what you'll get is Christians who are careful to devote themselves. It's not that they have to be told, you should be doing this, you should be doing this. No, what you'll get is Christians who are careful to devote themselves. They're very intentional, they want to. They want to devote themselves to doing what is good. And then that will be excellent and profitable for the whole place, for everyone. That will kind of work its way out to everyone else. Now, let me just tell you, I want us just to wrestle with this for a minute, brothers and sisters, just for a few seconds, because I'll tell you why. It is quite normal, and particularly, I think, in the Church of England, to aim for the exact opposite of this. The precise opposite. Right, let me just tell you what the opposite is. Right, the opposite is, do get everyone to do some good stuff. Okay? Let's do some projects that will get some good stuff going for everyone everywhere. Hopefully, if we do that, some of those people might become Christians. And possibly one might want to do a Bible study sometime. If we're lucky, they might come to church right? So here's our strategy. The missing strategy of the church, quite often the Church of England, we'll put our hands up to it, is let's do some stuff. Let's go and do some cool things out there, maybe some really helpful, beneficial things that are good and profitable for everyone. Let's do that, right? Then people might, like, take an interest, oh, and become Christians. And then one or two, a very small proportion, might be interested in actually coming to church or doing some Bible study. Now, this is just, I know some people like pictures on this. This is what I would describe as going up to a withered tree. Can you imagine a withered tree? Right? In the middle of our churchyard, perhaps. A withered tree, nothing on it. Right? And the idea is here, that idea would be like, oh, we've got a withered tree. 
what we need to do is get some green leaves. I've got a bucket of green leaves here and I've got some blue tack. What we could do is let's stick some green leaves and flowers perhaps on this tree so that it looks nice and things start to look a bit better. And hopefully, hopefully that will revive the tree. But do you see what the Apostle Paul is saying to Titus? He's saying, no, don't, no, you don't do that. You put water and nutrients into the ground. You feed. You do, it's kind of a hidden work, really. Slightly behind the scenes. You feed that soil with water, nutrients, and then what will happen very naturally very organically, is this tree will start to be revived. It will start to produce, oh, look, there's some green shoots starting to come out. Oh, look, it's in leaf. Oh, look, some flowers are coming along. And then, hopefully, birds will come and nest there and it'll be a haven for wildlife and you might get bees coming along and it's fragrant and everything else. But you see how quite often we go the opposite route with this, quite opposite would be to go, we need to stick leaves on trees. Now, let me tell you then, just to put a little bit more than just the... I'll tell you what, a guy called Matthew Paris, I promised to do this in the introduction. A guy called Matthew Paris, he's an MP, he's a uh, political writer and broadcaster, very clever man. If, you've, um, if you listen to Radio 4, he's on um, uh, In Our Time or something like that, I can't remember. Great Lives, that's it. He does great lives. He does a show on Radio 4. He's, about, he's in his 70s now, but he grew up in Africa. And here's what he wrote in the Times a few years ago. I'm going to give you the whole quote. Right? It's about three paragraphs. Are you ready for this? Right? This is what he said about Africa. He said, Before Christmas, I returned after 45 years to Malawi. So Malawi is about, uh, about a third of the way up the continent. And the Times Christmas Appeal includes a small British charity working there, Pump Aid, which helps, run, run, um, which helps rural communities to install a simple pump, letting people keep their village wells sealed and clean. And I went to see this work. Okay. It inspired me, he said, renewing my flagging faith in development charities. But traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief, one I've been trying to banish all my life but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds me. It confounds my ideological beliefs. It stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, this is what he says, listen to this, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real, and the change is good. Now, that is the honestly, that is the first three paragraphs of an article, which is probably about six or seven times as long as that. 
And he, he doesn't stop. He goes further and further into saying why it is critical that people are changed from the heart. You cannot just put leaves on trees. You need the change. And he's like, in the most hard up places of rural Africa, that is what you need. And he's a total atheist. He's a confirmed atheist who's just observing what's going on in the situation he wrote a few years ago in the Times. I've got the reference. If you want it, you can come grab it, read the whole thing. I originally titled this, so I originally titled this talk, this is part of the Healthy uh, Church, What is a, a Church in Good Health? I did three, this is three talks. This was, this was titled A Healthy Gospel. This is what I wanted to title this talk, right? Because, because, if we can get the water, it's essentially about getting that water and nutrients right. We put the right stuff in the soil, and then we pray to the Lord, and it will grow good fruit. So we're going to look. We're going to look at the six things. This is my final section of the talk, right? Six things that Paul says, is that six? That Paul says, these are, these are the ingredients for a healthy gospel. This is what you need. This is what we need to safeguard, brothers and sisters. In our day, right, in the middle of 2022, South End on Sea, the church, of which we're part of it here, are the custodians of these things. These are the truths that we need to hold on to and hold out and herald. And then the change will come. Here it is. Let's have a look at it. Six things. We're going to sketch them all out. The first one is verse four. But when the kindness of love of God appeared, we'll stop there. When the kindness of love, the kindness and love of God appeared. Now, what is he up to there? He's saying, I think probably the key word there is appeared. This whole little section is a bit of a, it's a bit of a summary of what it means to be a Christian. It was probably a summary that was used quite a lot in those very earliest days of Christianity. And here's the first bit. The kindness and love of God appeared. What that means is, what that means is, It's not the kindness and love of God imagined by a group of people. It was the kindness and love of God that appeared. Let me tell you, let me just give you one example of this. So in the historic creeds of the church, there's a very, very strange line. We say lots and lots of things about Jesus. It was born of a virgin, that all this is going. And then we say that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He died and was crucified and was buried, right? So the reason, the reason the church put that in there, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was to make sure that Jesus is always the Jesus of history and not the Jesus of our imagination. He died under a guy called Pontius Pilate. He was ruling at the time. He was part of the Roman authorities. That's who we're talking about That Jesus, who was crucified by that historic authority in that time then. Because the problem is, and it happens all the time, and it happens today. People want to make their own versions of Jesus. You know about this from all the stuff that we've had about in our news and all that kind of thing, about white Jesuses, 
right? We make Jesus in our own image. So we make him white, we make him blonde hair and blue eyes and all that kind of thing. Or we make an inclusive Jesus, a very tolerant Jesus, because that's the thing we want next. So let's have a really tolerant and really inclusive Jesus. We want him to be the most tolerant and inclusive human being that's ever walked the planet. Let's have one of those. I don't know what the next thing will be. But constantly we're reimagining what the best version of ourselves might be and calling it Jesus. That's not the Jesus we need. The Jesus we need is the Jesus of history, the real Jesus who really came, who really lived, really died, really rose again, really ascended to heaven. That is the Jesus we need for our souls. And that is the Jesus who appeared. The kindness and love actually came down. We saw him, say the apostles, we saw him. Love and kindness has a name. His name is Jesus. So that is the first thing, the historic Jesus. He actually came. Second, he saved us. Verse five, he saved us. First three words on that slide there. He saved us. Brothers and sisters, it's not that we need a shiny example because basically the humans, us human beings, need a little tweaking. You know, we need to be tweaked. We're a little bit off course. We're not particularly well calibrated. What we need is to be tweaked. We need someone inspiring to just inspire us forward in our lives. This is, no, he saved us. We need a savior. If we're going for the inspirational thing, and this is another thing, like this is why it's so important to safeguard. If you want to go for the inspirational thing, church gets very hard very, very quickly. In fact, people stop coming. Because if we're after inspiration, then church just has to keep on getting better and better and better. These gathered times, we've got to get the, the music's got to be better, the coffee's got to be better, the speaking's got to be better, the building's got to be better. We've got to keep on making things better and better and better so that we're continually inspired. Right? And, oh, that's better. Oh, that was good. Oh, that's amazing. Right? But Jesus has not come to be an inspiration so much as to be a saviour. He saved us. And you notice verse 3 and 4, he saved, deceived, and enslaved fools who envy and hate one another. That's the Apostle Paul, who was super religious. Yeah? Apostle Paul, before he was saved, born again, before he met the risen Jesus, he was mega religious. He was a Pharisee. He was a super good guy. And he says, he says this, at one time, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's what Paul said about himself. That's what, that was me. That's what I was like before I was rescued. I tell you, the more you, I think, hang on. The more I think you try, if, you've, if you think that's not true, I know, I know it's sometimes all those words, they sound really full on. The more actually I've tried, I don't know if you've tried to follow Jesus really hard. Like, read the Sermon on the Mount, for example. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this, Jesus. I'm going to try really, really hard. 
The moment you actually do that is the moment you go, oh man, I am enslaved. I can't. I cannot do it, even though I'm really trying. And then Jesus comes along and goes, no, I, I, I know. I know. That's why you need a saviour. And he saved us, so, so important, not because, this is the next one, same, same verse, same uh, verse five, not because of the righteous things we've done. Take you back, let me take you back to um, the Old Testament. Remember Moses in Egypt, right? This is the biggest story of the Old Testament, so we, you know, it's a big one. What happened there was, it wasn't that all of God's people were in Egypt, we were talking about this, I think, the other day uh, in morning prayer. It wasn't that all... What happened is all the people, they're enslaved, they're in Egypt, they're slaves, they're making bricks. Oh, it's hard work, back-breaking work. And the Lord goes, all right, what I'm going to do with you guys, I know you're in Egypt, I know it's hard. <clears throat> I'm going to give you 10 commandments, right? What you need to do is do those commandments, or at least try. Right? And if you do them well enough, then I'll rescue you out of this slavery and bring you into the promised land. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. The Lord goes, I will save you. I'll rescue you from that slavery in Egypt and I'll bring you completely up and out of that. 100%. Then, not because of anything you've done, not because you're really amazing, special, you know, there's something about you which is really, really great. No, he said, I will do it. I'll rescue you. And then, once they're rescued, completely clear, and all of their foes have been mightily judged behind them, once that's all dealt with, then the Lord goes, all right, here's how we're going to do this now. Here's how we're going to live. And then he presents the law. That's how it works. Same with us this side of the cross. He saves us, not because we've fulfilled a list of bits and pieces. He does it entirely unmerited. This is so critical. It's so important that we get these things. Remember, it's these things, it's these truths that change your life. It's these truths that make people go, I'm going to uh, quit my job and go and work in a completely different country to tell people about Jesus. It's these kind of things that made people go, wow, this is such good news. I'm going to change the way I give my money in a life-altering way. Right? It's these things, it's these deep truths that make people go, I'm going to give my life to serving this community of people so that they too hear the good news about Jesus or that they're helped in some way. It's these truths, it's these things these things that get in a heart and change someone. That's the, um, that's the third one. Um, fourth, same verse, verse five. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal, regeneration by the Holy Spirit. This is stopping us, right? This bit, this bit, if you like, is stopping people going. Um, Christianity is just, is words. It's words. It's, um, it's a set of things to believe in. Um, it's a worldview. 
that I, I subscribe to, much like I subscribe to Apple Music. Because he says, no, it's saved through the washing and rebirth and regeneration by God's Holy Spirit. So becoming a Christian is a genuine spiritual experience. The Spirit of God is going to come into your life. It's not just words and beliefs and a worldview. You're going to receive an outpouring. That's what it says, isn't it? The Lord is going to generously outpour the Holy Spirit on you, and it's going to change you. You're going to be in a new world now. It's going to be different now. You're going to be living in a new world when the Spirit of God comes upon you like that. And the fascinating thing about all this, all of this is linked up, really. This whole section is linked up to the very end. In fact, even that word regeneration is the word that Jesus uses when he's talking about the very end of history. The very end of history, when everything is made new, that moment, he's like, that's the word we're going to use there, new creation, regeneration. And the Spirit's like a down payment of that. Do you know, um, do you know the, uh, that game, lottery game, Oh, it's the one where basically it's a big pot of money, but you get like £10,000 a month for about 30 years. You seen that one? Yeah, you heard that one? You might, might have come up on your, on your Google or your Facebook feed or whatever. The idea is, big pot of cash, what would that be? Uh, 3.6, 3.6 million, right? 3.6 million pounds. That's your prize money. You're going to get all of it, the whole lot, Right? But you're going to get it in instalments. Once a month, you're going to get £10,000, right? It's pretty awesome, right? So the, the, um, the question is, you have got this massive inheritance. One day, you're going to get the full 3.6 mil, right? It's all yours. And one day future, that whole 3.6 million is going to be yours, right? But let me ask you this. When does your life change? The answer is, when you get that first payment in the bank, isn't it? The first 10,000 pounds, that's when things start to change. The first time you go to the cash machine, it's like, oh, wow, I've got 10,000 pounds in there now. That's the moment your life changes. The Spirit of God, through the washing and regeneration of new birth, is like a deposit. He is actually described in that way. A deposit sealing that future coming but right now coming in and your life will never be the same again. The Spirit of God given as a deposit, generously poured out. Love that. Love that. Generously. It's like huge outpouring. Can I just pour it all out? Here we go. Poured out. Lives changed. You can't just reduce it to words and worldviews, and the way I see things is like this, power from on high. Finally, I'm going to wrap the last two up in just a single point, so that, this is verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is where we started, this is where I'll finish. Having become Having been justified by grace, we might be heirs with the hope of eternal life. Remember, all of these things, these are the deep truths that change your life. And this is what I tell my kids. Basically, every night when I put my children to bed, I will say to them something like, I usually pray with them, and I will say something to them, something like, uh, we'll pray, I'll like, isn't it wonderful that you've got nice, warm, cozy beds? 
you are loved by your mummy and daddy. Um, we can have this house. You're warm. You've got full tummies. But even more than that, this is my little routine. I'll say even, I'll whisper it in their ears. <laughs> say even more than that, you are loved, forgiven. You have nothing to fear standing in the presence of the living God. You are justified. That's what that means. It means you have no fear the day you have to stand before the Lord. You don't have to worry about that at all because you're an heir. You're a child. You are a child of the living God and he is a good, good father. You never have to worry about that day, ever. Now, I tell these kids, I tell my kids that because it's more important to me than them brushing them teeth. I get them to brush their teeth, right? I get them to eat their vegetables and do their homework. But these are the truths. Knowing that you will never have to fear the Lord and his judgment, knowing that you'll stand before him as a child and an heir, are the things that change a life. I pray it will bring about in my children's lives and in our lives and the life of this church such a revelation. Wow, that is so incredible. That is so scandalously good that I will reorient my entire life for him. That's what it does. That's what it does when it gets in. So stress these things. That's the job. That's the job. Paul says to Titus, that is your job. Your job, stress these things. You've just got to tell them and remind them. Keep stressing them. Tell them who they are in the Lord. Tell them they're heirs. Tell them they're justified. Tell them they're given God's spirit. Tell them it was nothing that they did. All grace. He saved us. Tell them that it was the Jesus who appeared on the stage of history. Not some imaginative imaginative figure that we've made up out of our own imagination. The real Jesus of history. He did it. And so all those promises are yours. All of them. And that's the, that's the nutrients. You feed that in. You put that in. You put that water in. That's the job. Feed that into a life. And that's what produces the change. Matthew, Matthew Paris says so. <laughs> and the Apostle Paul says so. Under the inspiration of the Spirit. That's the Word of God. That's what you do. That is what you do. That is what we're custodians here to do as a church family, primarily. We'll do lots of things. I know we'll do lots of things. I know that. But the one thing that ministry has got to do, the really, really important thing, is that. Let's pray. Shall we pray together? Let's pray. Wow, the the love and kindness of God appeared. That's what it was. It's who he is. That love and kindness has a name. Lord Jesus, it's you. And I do pray that, uh, that knowing these things, 
these amazing things, these wonderful, wonderful things, these deep and profound things would shape lives that would produce in us people who are careful to devote themselves. Lord, that doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally in me, but it would produce in, in me, in us, people who are careful. Oh, I want to. Oh, yes, I want to devote myself to these things. Lord, would you do that? And in so doing, bring about change, bring about good, bring about good things for us here as we live and work and move in this place, right here where you've put us, South End on Sea, right here, right now, 2022. Lord, use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.